the fear started off at the beginning of the administration about fear of people losing their livelihoods. By the end of the administration, it was legitimate fear about losing their lives. People were legitimately scared about threats to their lives and their families if they came out against Trump because they saw the way he whipped up political intimidation and they saw a growing trend towards political violence in the country. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Miles Taylor, is a former Republican chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security under Trump. He's the one who authored the anonymous letter to the New York Times saying that he was part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. He went on to write a book called A Warning about what Trump is really like. He then worked to mobilize Republican leaders for Biden in 2020, and he's running an organization called Renew America Movement, which is trying to break Trump's hold on his former party. I really appreciate those Republicans who have that kind of courage in a time when disagreement is becoming increasingly dangerous. Miles is a super interesting guest. I hope you will listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Miles Taylor of the Renew America Movement. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Miles, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, yeah. Miles Taylor currently work as the executive director of the Renew America movement and previously served as chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security. And there's a little more to that career than that. How did you take yourself down the road towards a role in the administration previous to the current one? Yeah, well, you know, look, I first got involved in public policy because of 9-11. So it was the September 11th attacks that really convinced me what I wanted to go do was work in the national security community. Had no interest whatsoever in working in politics per se, only in policy and wanting to do what I could to prevent a day like that from happening again. So that journey took me to Capitol Hill in Washington after 9-11 and then to the Pentagon during the Bush administration, Vice President Cheney's office, and ultimately at the Department of Homeland Security at the end of the Bush years. Went and spent a number of years on Capitol Hill after that, working on national security issues on a range of different committees, and then sort of got pulled into the the craziness of Trump's rise when about a year or so, you know, before he got elected, when he entered the race, we were in the midst of working on a national security strategy for the Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives, and Paul Ryan who was then Speaker of the House, was extremely concerned 
not that Trump would win the nomination because no one thought he had a shot at winning the nomination, but that his mere presence in the race was going to do real damage to the GOP brand. Keep in mind, Ryan was really trying to move past the culture wars and have the Republican Party focused on fiscal conservatism, strong national defense, those sorts of issues. And so I began to help Ryan and his team craft something we called privately the Trump inoculation plan, which was basically a policy agenda that was entirely antithetical to everything Trump was saying, articulating. And we did that deliberately. We wanted the GOP's official you know, platform, as it was laid out by Ryan, to be kind of the opposite of the things Trump was saying to make a point. Now, of course, the irony is that Trump did end up winning the nomination and, of course, the presidency. And in the you know final weeks before the election, we worked very hard because, again, we were convinced he would not win the presidency. We worked very hard to convince Republican members of Congress to defect and not to support him, especially after the Access Hollywood tape. Again, those efforts ended up failing massively. Trump won the presidency. I had, you know, privately supported Hillary Clinton because I was like, there's no way this guy's going to win. He's a cancer on the party. At least the election will mean we're done with it. We all know what happened. And in the aftermath, a former mentor of mine, John Kelly, who at the time was a four star general at U.S. Southern Command, was tapped to be Secretary of Homeland Security. And so we helped advise him through the confirmation process. Kelly didn't know Donald Trump, had no excitement about serving Donald Trump, and indeed took the post because, like many, he was really worried that a guy had been elected who was incapable of taking on the job of president, or at least was coming in incredibly ill-suited to the role. I didn't come in right away because I had no interest in working in the Trump administration. But then after a period of time, it was clear that things were not as bad as they looked. They were so much worse. And Kelly and his team reached out and asked if I'd come help um, basically steady the ship. And so I agreed to go do that. And it was uh, it indeed lived up to that reputation, as Kelly said, of being so much worse on the inside than it looked like from the outside. What do you make of the political success that Trump had taking positions that were antithetical to sort of core Republican principles of longstanding. Do you think that that says something about the Republican Party being out of touch with certain strands in its electorate? Or, you know, how do you think about his success? Do you think he tapped into something or do you think he moved people in a direction that was different than where they were before? How do you think about that question? I think he stitched together a new political coalition, and I don't think it massively changed people's minds. I mean, one thing you realize when you read a lot of these public opinion polls, people are pretty set in their ways. Ideologically, they largely remain consistent. Um, it's the candidates that change and the parties that change, but people are inherently tribal, and they like to you know, stay with their tribe. And I think in the case of the Republican Party, What's sad is you realize that most of the Republican base is not part of the tribe because of its core values and beliefs. They're part of the tribe because it is a tribe and they want the protection of a tribe and they're willing to stick with it, even if the tribal leaders and the values change and they they shift. And evolutionary biology has taught us a lot about that. And some of the best writers on this are folks like Jonathan Haidt and others. What I think Trump did is he put together 
an unusual coalition for the Republican Party that hadn't existed previously by really tapping into working class, blue collar voters. And this is the reason why you have this very strange phenomenon of people who are both Bernie Sanders supporters and Donald Trump supporters. And you meet these people, and at first you're like, well, this doesn't make any damn sense to me. Bernie Sanders is far, far on the left, and Donald Trump is far, far on the alt-right. How are you guys even aligning under both of those candidates? And the answer is because it's very immature for us to think of politics as a linear spectrum. Instead, it's really a circle. And you've got, let's say, the rational centrist segment at the top of the circle, but then the extremes start to meet at the bottom end. So the far left Bernie Sanders supporter can also, in many cases, be a further right Trump supporter because in many cases, those folks are unified around a certain value set. Now, that's not to say that every Trump supporter is a Bernie supporter and vice versa. Like on protectionism, they might be closer together than maybe either party was. And I kind of feel like Trump found some policy places to position himself on immigration and trade that didn't have a, anyone leading them in that direction beforehand, maybe a little bit cleverly. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, and I think you're right. I mean, of course, it's not issue for issue. Like I said, Bernie Sanders are not Trump supporters. Trump are not Bernie supporters. But the fact that there's a phenomenon of people who are connected to both shows you that it's more of a circle rather than a spectrum. And, um, you know, what I think is, uh, you know, both the Bernie and Trump phenomenons, I think, can be explained as a reaction to the past several decades of globalization. And it sounds like a really banal conclusion, but you go pull those folks. And like you just expressed, a lot of them will say that they're really frustrated that globalization has left them behind. Markets are changing. Industries are changing. They don't want the country to be taken over. And so on issues like trade and immigration, they want a very different world than the one that was put together in the post-Cold War order. And, you know, people like Trump, populists like Trump have tapped into that and stitched together an odd coalition of, in some cases, blue collar Democrats, disaffected Republicans um, into this sort of new MAGA hybrid. And um, I think that's been pretty catastrophic, frankly, because that he's actually been able to hold that coalition uh, together in many ways. What was the difference in feeling to be in the administration before Trump and to be in the Trump administration? What's different about serving when he's the head guy? Uh, everything. Um, you know, in the W. Bush administration, uh, it was a very, very disciplined structure. And there's something that in the world that I come from, the national security world, is called the policy coordination process. So the National Security Council advises the president on matters of war and peace and uh, any range of sensitive intelligence issues. And the NSC runs these things called PCCs, Policy Coordination Committees. There are these little committees on an issue-by-issue -issue basis that get together across all the departments and agencies to put together plans and respond to incidents. So, you know, if the North Koreans are getting ready to do a missile launch, the PCC for North Korea, which includes all the people working in North Korea you know, that are key decision makers at the Defense Department, the State Department, the White House, they all come together under the auspices of the White House to say, you know, what do we know? What options do we propose to the president? It's a coherent process to deal with situations, to process information, to make decisions and set the agenda. That worked very well in the Bush administration when I was there. It was a very disciplined process. In the Trump administration, everything happened completely 
opposite of that. Trump would see something, he would tweet something, he would make a decision, and departments and agencies would be scrambling to catch up rather than providing the president with structured advice, options for decision making, etc. Flipping that process on its head in the Trump administration led to just complete and utter chaos in the U.S. federal government. Things just didn't work. And you lurched from crisis to crisis. It now seems very obvious to say that all of us were living tweet by tweet, but that's what you had to do. I mean, I was dumbfounded weeks into the job when I was told at a meeting at the White House, you need to have Trump's tweets pushed to the lock screen on your phone, you know, turn on push alerts. It's like, why? I don't want to see everything he tweets. But the comment was because that may be the first opportunity you find out about a policy decision. And that turned out to be the case is, you know, Trump would regularly concoct bad ideas, immoral ideas, unethical ideas, or worse, illegal ideas that he would officially make policy on Twitter before consulting his chief of staff or cabinet secretaries. So the consequence for us at the Department of Homeland Security was that rather than managing day to day the 250,000 people of the department that we needed to manage, we had to spend a great bulk of our time managing one person, managing up to get Trump to walk back bad ideas uh, and to you know keep him basically on a, on a steadier path. Again, I'd largely say that that was unsuccessful in the end, um, but it was it made it extremely difficult for us to do our jobs. I mean, ultimately, when I quit the administration in protest and I started campaigning against Trump in 2020, my primary reason was that I felt like genuinely he'd made the country less secure. We were supposed to be focused every single day on things like cybersecurity, counterterrorism, you know, nation states that are spying on the United States. These are the things that DHS does. Instead, by the end, I had to spend most of my day dealing with the fallout of bad decisions from the commander in chief and managing political crises that he created rather than working and managing this department and protecting the American people. He made it damn near impossible to protect the American people against those threats because of the complete and unending chaos in the administration. So what's the difference? (laughs) Night and day. Absolutely night and day compared to the previous administration I'd been in. And it was a no-brainer to go out and say, this man cannot be president again. It is quite literally putting the country in danger every single day to have him as president. And and the the bookend that I'll add to that answer is that, you know, I've written a book called A Warning after I left the administration, basically saying that it would be a danger to reelect Donald Trump. And in there, I've written that we were lucky to have not yet had an international crisis, because at that point, there hadn't been any major global crisis on Donald Trump's watch. And I said, we're lucky that we haven't, because if we do, under this man's leadership, it's going to end in death. It's going to end in death. In fact, the month that I published my book is when the first cases of COVID-19 started spreading in China. We did have that crisis in the next year. And the result was indeed death and catastrophe, because Trump's administration was not set up to deal with crisis situations in any disciplined fashion, because it operated merely on his immediate gut instincts and feelings and the undulations of his emotions at that moment, which meant that any crisis response was going to be a very, very bad byproduct of his impetuousness. And and it was, as we saw with COVID-19, very unfortunate. What do you make of his relationship with Russia, the policy changes that he tried to make with respect to Russia or made and sort of how our relationship with Russia has 
changed during his time and subsequently? The simplest explanation is always the best. And in the case of Trump's relations with autocrats, there's two reasons that I ultimately deduced he was so friendly towards dictatorial countries and largely unfriendly towards democratic countries. One, he wanted to be more like them. And two, he wanted the personal benefits of those friendships after he was president. Now, this isn't just idle speculation. This was a constant conversation inside the administration, including among Trump's closest cabinet secretaries, who would also in private moments after we left the Oval Office or after we left the White House Situation Room say, I just don't get it. I don't fucking get why he likes these guys so much. There was a collective sort of grasping among people at the highest levels in the administration to figure out why Trump was so pro-autocrat and really did not have a great deal of affinity for our fellow democracies and the international system and democratic leaders. So those two answers I gave are the conclusion a lot of us came to based on Trump's own comments and his behavior. The first one, that he wanted to be more like those countries. When Trump came into office, he expressed to a number of aides in the early months how frustrated he was that he couldn't get things done. He had a very amateurish perception of what the executive office of the president could do and the powers of the presidency. Trump quite literally thought he could do almost anything and was really genuinely disappointed to find out that as president of the United States, he couldn't do almost anything, that he was hemmed in by laws and advisors and norms and two other branches of government, which we can get back to. Very, very angry that there was a legislative branch and a judicial branch that were constantly standing in his way. So you could see that he admired autocrats a great deal because they had the flexibility that he so desired. Again, you don't have to rely on me as the narrator for this. Trump made as much clear in his own words when he would go meet with President Xi in China and Vladimir Putin uh, would express to them how much he envied their systems. And he would do the same thing in private. I mean, I can remember on occasions being in the Oval Office as he waxed poetic about how easy Kim Jong-un had it in North Korea and why couldn't we make our national security apparatus look like the North Korean national security apparatus? Because he was able to do whatever he wanted, and we should be able to do the same. Namely, in one instance, he pointed to how Kim was able to put barbed wire and landmines and armed guards down at the border, and we should do the same thing. He wanted the U.S. southern border to look like the North Korean DMZ, the demilitarized zone between the North and the South. So he had envy. He wanted to be like those leaders. The second thing is personal self-interest. Donald Trump knew from his many years in business that leaders of democratic countries also have checks and balances that make it really hard for them to cut through red tape. Who doesn't? Leaders of autocratic countries. They can basically cut through the tape themselves. They can get you money. They can close real estate deals. He knew that that was the case in the business world, that you could do more in those places. And in fact, that's probably a, a cover for corruption, right? Corruption's a lot easier in those places. And as a result, friendships with dictatorial leaders in his mind would pay off at the end of the administration when he went back into the private sector. Again, you don't have to trust me as the narrator for that. Plenty of other folks like John Bolton, who'd been national security advisor to Trump, came out publicly and said that after the fact that it was his perception that that's why Trump, uh, for instance, was friends with Erdogan in Turkey and, and other leaders is that he suspected there would be benefits to him later on from developing those relationships. What's worrying is you've seen some of that actually play out, maybe not with Trump directly. We don't know what his current business dealings are. But you've seen members of Trump's family go, you know, raise substantial sums from autocrats around the world that they had close relationships with. That's not a coincidence, in my view. 
Those are frankly the two answers. And both of those answers should, I think, horrify and disgust the American people and make folks really, really worried about the possibility of a second Trump term. We would never want a president of the United States who envies autocrats and wants to instill those practices in uh, the world's oldest democracy, our country, nor would we want a president ever taking the job and engaging in international relations with an eye towards personal self-interest for the post-presidency. But I very much believe those were the case with Trump. And in the second Trump term, we would see that at much greater scale. I've read a series of books which talk about sort of the authoritarian playbook that people from Mussolini to Putin to Orban to Berlusconi or whatever have played where they have uh, over time assumed more and more power and undermined in a lot of cases, democratic institutions and, and put themselves closer and closer to that kind of rule. Do you think that Trump had an awareness autocrats on that model have learned from each other. There are certain things undermining the free press that they do that, that are fairly predictable. You know, Ruth Ben Giat's book, strong men shows that. Do you think that Trump was after that in any kind of systematic way or by instinct, or how do you think about to what degree he was gunning for more power in that model? Well, I, I think um, it's charitable to describe anything Trump does as systematic. For something to be systematic, it requires reconciling ends with the ways and means to accomplish those ends. I think in Trump's case, his ends are relatively short-sighted. It's anything that benefits himself in the moment. And the ways and means are any opportunity that he encounters uh, to implement his immediate term objectives. I don't think there's a lot of long-range strategic planning with him. And as a result, not a lot of long-range uh, resource thinking about how to accomplish his objectives. So as a consequence of that, when it came to his administration, it was a lot of trial and error. So you can think of Trump, I think, very accurately as a wannabe autocrat, but a wannabe autocrat who's entered government with very limited awareness of the levers of government, the limits of his power, and also as a result, uh, a very limited ability to navigate those systems. So. Trump, I suppose, you know, deep, deep in his consciousness, there's a voice saying you wasted several years because you didn't know how to navigate this system. If Trump had come in very well informed about the processes of government, about systems of government, it could have been a lot more dangerous because he wouldn't have wasted so much time through trial and error realizing what all the checks were on his power. It took him a long time to understand how Congress worked and the limitations that he had with Congress. By the very end, I still think he didn't understand the role of the federal judiciary and the limitations that the courts placed on him. But importantly, he had very little grasp of the executive branch or even how the White House itself operated. And so Trump was constantly running into walls where he'd want to do a thing. We'll pick an example. He was constantly wanting to redesign the border wall all the time. Trump was all the time wanting to redesign what the border wall looked like. Sounds like a very simplistic thing for the president of the United States to say, I want it to look like this. I want it to be, you know, 20 feet tall and have black spikes and be very sharp. Well, early in the administration, when the border wall had been redesigned and then Congress goes and passes a budget and they fund it 
the, the thing starts to get built. There's a million things that would have to change to change that. He didn't realize, you know, he'd have to overrule Congress. He'd have to cancel budgets. He'd have to, you know, this and that. And so Trump would run into these barriers and say, well, I want this done. Well, Mr. President, you don't understand a contract's been issued and you can't decide to cancel it yourself because it shows favoritism for some other vendor. And then members of Congress are mad and the courts would stop it. I mean, he would all he would get stuck in this morass, not knowing how government worked, that he would keep making these foolish decisions that wouldn't survive first contact with reality. I say at first, because by the end of the Trump administration, he started to systematically dismantle the guardrails around him, first starting with the people closest to him, the people who whose better judgment he had to defer to in the first year or two of the administration. He realized, I, I don't like these people. They don't want to do the bad things I want to do, so I'm going to get rid of them. And and you saw mass firings across the administration of the first two years. You know, Trump fired basically half of his cabinet and major advisors, at least in the national security community, in the first two years of the administration. And those were largely because those were people who privately would tell him no. And he didn't want people who told him no around. But it went well beyond him just trying to get rid of the people who wouldn't say yes. Uh, he wanted to keep close the people who believed he could get out of the strictures that were placed around the executive office of the president and really empowered those people such that it was no coincidence that at the very end of the administration, we saw people like Sidney Powell and John Eastman bring fantastical legal strategies into the White House to claim ultimate power for the president and the ability effectively to overturn democratic elections. None of that's a coincidence. We started with a cabinet that probably any Republican president would have been proud to have. It was pretty strong cabinet in general of Republicans at the time to at the end, an absolutely debased cabinet full largely of people who were Trump sycophants and wanting to help the president uh, do the things he said he wanted to do. That transition is probably the only thing that you could say was systematic about the Trump administration. And it was a systematic descent into an administration that was largely built around the self-interest of its leader. The committee investigating January 6th, it does seem to sh to put together a fairly long-term, fairly systematic effort to wriggle out of the actual results of the election and try uh, to thread the needle and, and use the loopholes and make things change. Is that an example of him thinking systematically or his team thinking systematically about something and planning over time. I mean, what's your evaluation of that of that stop the steal effort? Well, look, it starts and ends with Trump. You can't give Trump any of the credit for the micro legal strategies that were deployed to make it happen. But you could think of those as the window dressing to justify the ultimate desires of the man at the top. And in that case, Trump's thinking was systematic insofar as he worries in advance about one thing and one thing only, and that is being seen as a loser. Trump in any given issue does not want to be seen as a loser. So whether it was conflict with North Korea or whether it was immigration or whether it was an election, you almost always could understand where Donald Trump was going to come out if you went into the meeting thinking, he doesn't want to look like a loser. And if you needed to influence his thinking, you would couch it in those terms. And I mean that very specifically. There was a point at which Donald Trump wanted to precipitously pull out of Afghanistan early in his administration. And those of us in the national security community were very worried about an immediate withdrawal from Afghanistan 
and, and the potential for it to result in chaos. And at the time, we were trying to take out ISIS operatives in Afghanistan that were plotting against the United States. And we thought it would be a bad decision. One of the things we said when we briefed Trump on his options was, look, if you pull out right away, the Taliban, ISIS, and Al-Qaeda are going to make you out to be a loser. They're going to say, you're a total loser. You ran home with your tail between your legs, et cetera. That probably more than anything convinced Trump to stay in Afghanistan during the presidency, his fear of losing. Kind of ironic that Biden then does that, right? And it's pretty, pretty messed up. And I personally strongly disagreed with that decision. I mean, even though I, you know, I, I endorsed Biden for president and, uh, and felt like character mattered a lot more than policy in the 2020 election. Um, but I, I still think that was an absolute mistake to exit the way we did. And we tried to get Trump not to make that type of decision. And ultimately, it was a relatively juvenile heuristic that we were able to use to convince him not to, but for reasons that I articulated earlier that, that were more important than that. Um, but the same thing with the 2020 election. Trump had a, a deep-seated fear, of course, of losing the election and being seen as a loser. So well before the election, uh, quite literally years before the 2020 election, he started to seed a narrative about coups being afoot and a civil war being in the offing and the fact that elections in the United States were rigged. I, you know, a year before the 2020 election had made that clear in my book. And I, I'm not trying to be the guy that's like, well, if you read my book, <laughs> um, you know, but but it was one of the things I pointed out in there was that I said, look, even if Trump loses, he will not go quietly or easily because he has already started to seed this narrative. He wants to lay the groundwork for pointing back to the fact that he called it years in advance and said, this may be stolen from us and it's illegitimate. He very much had that in his mind, but that's, I wouldn't put that towards any sort of sophisticated thinking on Donald Trump's part. It's the same thing that he's done for years in the business world. And if you go back and look at his history, whether it's contracts or deals, Trump will always create an opportunity to save face and have an out if he needs it. So he doesn't look like a loser. And in fact, he even said on multiple occasions to us in person about how his strategy in business was not to wait for someone to come after him. It was to preemptively sue. And, you know, he would say, that's what you do. Even if you don't have a case against someone, you just sue them. And you know what happens when you sue them? They settle. And that was his comment. If you threaten to sue someone, they're going to keep coming after you. If you actually sue them, they settle. And so his his point was to preemptively take action to defend yourself. And that's what he did in the lead up to 2020. He started to seed that narrative of stolen election. Now, what was fantastical about that is very few people know, ironically, around the time Trump started to say those things, we were actually briefing him on the fact that we anticipated 2020 would be the most secure election in U.S. history. Why? Because after the 2016 Russian intervention in our electoral system, we in the national security community were hell-bent on preventing it from ever happening again. Now, Trump didn't want to hear anything about Russia. So often those conversations didn't rise to his level because he'd get pissed off and say, I don't want to hear about it. Stop complaining about Russia. Russia's our friend. But we briefed the president. We said, look, we've, we're putting in place end-to-end -end plans across the federal government and in cooperation with state and local governments to make sure that the 2018 midterm elections and the 2020 presidential election are the most secure we have ever held, can't be meddled with, and that we're very confident in the results. So that's one of the great ironies of Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election is it was an effort to overturn a system his administration had made more secure than ever. And it was his own handpicked, appointed 
people who were able to come out and say publicly, Mr. President, no, this was actually a secure election. And we had done so much work for years to make sure we were able to say that with authority. So again, a big irony in Trump's uh, efforts to overturn the elections, but he managed to persuade millions of people that that was the case because he started early in seeding that narrative. Can you tell me about your state of mind when you decide to write that anonymous editorial in the New York Times that got so much attention? It is not easy to go public even without your name, because things will come out uh, in this world mostly, uh, to go public against the administration that you're staffing and to issue that kind of warning publicly in such a high profile way. I mean, I would be pretty fearful if I were doing that. What was your state of mind? Immense frustration. There's an old adage that you don't meet your heroes because they'll disappoint you. I hate to say that that's certainly been my experience in Washington, D.C., in that a lot of the people I looked up to in this town that I thought would do the right thing when presented with moral dilemmas during the Trump administration, whether they were in it, on Capitol Hill, or observing, made the wrong choice, would privately admit the danger of what we were witnessing, but publicly were very afraid to express it. Now, when I was in the administration, I had no illusions that I was <laughs> some sort of household name. I was barely known to <laughs> barely known to half my friends in Washington, D.C. But people who were household names, who I worked with on a daily basis, again, whether in the executive branch or Capitol Hill or elsewhere, were very aware of the situation we were in. One cabinet secretary remarked after a meeting in the White House Situation Room, not that he was frustrated with Donald Trump after that meeting, but that he thought the man was, quote, a threat to the fabric of our republic. Okay, if you are a cabinet secretary to a president of the United States, and you believe that president of the United States is a threat to the fabric of our republic, presumably, you also believe that the American people who are the only ones in the Constitution really empowered to be the ultimate check on that person, presumably, they should know about that. Or at some point, they should know about that. I thought in the first year of the Trump administration that that was going to happen, that a number of his cabinet secretaries would go public, make those concerns known, and signal to the American people that Trump's own closest advisors were worried about his mental state. Now, some would need to stay in and actually try to steady the ship. But as he started to get rid of them, I figured, well, these people are going to get chucked and they're going to go out there in the public and tell the truth. Instead, what we saw was pretty deafening silence not just from those in the administration and those who'd been ousted, but especially on Capitol Hill among the Republicans who I was still socializing with regularly, senators, congressmen that I saw all the time, who would say the same things in private, but in public would sing a completely different tune. Now, I'm just some damn kid from a small town in Indiana, all right? A little farm town where you basically just, you just say the truth. I mean, you know, you don't come up with fantastical lies. You don't, you know, beg, borrow, and steal to get in a position of power. You just you just go say it how it is. And people were talking out of two sides of their mouths to the point that really bad things were starting to happen. And one of the things that broke really bad that year was despite the fact that behind the scenes, a lot of people were trying to stop Trump from implementing what later became known as the family separation policy. It sort of was this slow moving train wreck that went forward anyway, 
because people were too scared to stand up publicly and oppose him from within the administration. The result was an absolute preventable humanitarian catastrophe. And one that going into that summer, I thought, what the hell are we doing? Why aren't people doing more and saying more? There was a straw that broke the camel's back for me. The short version is sort of my last remaining hero in Washington, John McCain, had just passed away. And I was halfway around the world for some meetings in Australia with the Five Eyes intelligence community. Those are our closest intelligence partners. We were meeting, talking about sensitive threats for a a week-long conference. And I was asleep that night uh, in Australia, and it was morning in Washington, D.C., and I get a phone call from the White House that Trump is furious that we, the Department of Homeland Security, have told federal buildings across the country to lower their flags to have staff to honor John McCain. And he wanted the flag sent back up. He did not want McCain honored, which is, you know, it's standard procedure that a sitting U.S. senator who passes away would be honored with flags that have staff. Um, Trump wanted the flags back up. And in that moment, when I got that phone call, basically my response was, fuck it, I'm done. And I went over to the desk in my hotel room, opened up my iPad and and wrote 95% of that op-ed in, in about 45 minutes. Maybe 5% of it was changed in the next day or two with back and forth with the New York Times. But I was like, you know, people need to know how dangerous this guy is, that his own team thinks he's a risk to the country. And that, you know, we're in this bizarre circumstance of the president's own staff trying to thwart his bad impulses. I felt like that was really important that people at least know that, know how bad people felt like it was on the inside and that it wasn't just an illusion or a mainstream media obfuscation. It was real. Now, my designs had never been to stay anonymous forever. In fact, as you know, hardly anything stays secret. In fact, I anticipated within days the New York Times wouldn't be able to keep the secret. My name would be out there. But if not, you know, what I pledged at the time was I'm ultimately going to unmask myself. What I wanted is people in the short term to focus on the message and not the messenger. But ultimately, you have to own a comment like that so you can go better defend it in public and explain why you came to that conclusion. I'm in no way comparing myself to the founding fathers, but the inspiration I took for this was from the Federalist Papers. In fact, when I submitted my op-ed originally, I signed it Publius, which is what the, the founders used when they wrote the defense of the Constitution. Now, they didn't write that anonymously because they were scared, but they were worried that their case defending the Constitution would be picked apart and be all about them and their personal lives if they signed their names to it. And these were guys, they had various official positions in government, and they didn't want it to be about that. They wanted it to be about the ideas. Ultimately, none of them were scared to own the fact that they they wrote those pieces. And I felt the same way as, look, it needs to be a focus on the message. The president's unstable. His own people think that's the case for a period of time. But then people need to go own that and say that in their own name. So my plan all along had been publish the op-ed, see what response we got if people started to wake up to it, and then ultimately try to get as many of those cabinet secretaries as possible to quit the administration and to go publicly oppose the president's reelection. One of my deepest frustrations in that time period is, well, I'll tell you the good part. The good part is in 2020, we recruited the largest group of ex-administration officials in U.S. history to oppose the re-election of a president that they had served under. That's the good news. The bad news is hardly any of them were household names because a lot of those people declined to come be a part of that effort. It was a lot of folks like me who'd been in 
you know, chief of staff jobs or senior advisor jobs throughout the administration who were willing to go take that message out there. Although by the end of the election, we did get a massive number of people to weigh in in one way, shape or form against Donald Trump, including his former national security advisor, communications director, secretary of defense, secretary of state, chief of staff, secretary of homeland security. I mean, it's pretty fantastic when you compare that to other periods of time when people have defected from administrations. So anyway, long way of answering your question of where my mindset was, but it was, you know, total and complete frustration that the so-called adults in the room just weren't saying anything. I mean, look, who the hell is Miles Taylor and who cares? It shouldn't have been a me that came forward and made that case, but it had to be someone. And I was really grateful that so many more people ultimately ended up coming forward. How do you explain the Republicans that know better not stepping forward? How do you explain the bulk of the Republican Party not stepping up to this challenge? Is it a collective action problem? Like you needed to have everybody together to do it. And so any one person can't do it alone. Is it just self-serving about their own career? Is it that they think they can help the country more by being in that position and not giving up their power? Like what, is there a general thing that you can say about the, this failure of the 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 infection of the Republican Party with this disease that it has right now that they're following him? Yeah, my friend uh, Alex Vindman puts it really, really plainly when we've had conversations about the subject. And, you know, keep in mind that this is a debate the so-called rational Republicans would have a lot during the Trump years is how do we get more people to step forward? And during the 2020 election, I went at it in earnest. I mean, I, I think I tried to get every person who'd been fired or quit the Trump administration to come forward. And I saw every excuse you could think up. I sat with these people down the street at coffee shops. I went to lunches with them. I went to barbecues in their backyards to say, you got to come do this. Some of the same people who said the man's a threat to the fabric of our republic. But then they'd look at you over a steak and say, but now's not really a good time for me to go do that. And you think, what? If, if you think he's the most dangerous thing you've ever seen to this country in your lifetime, but. But so how do you explain you know, that? Like, was it self-interest ma- mainly? It comes, down it, was to like, one, it comes down to one word. It comes down to fear. Yeah. Getting blasted by him. The fear started off at the beginning of the administration about fear of people losing their livelihoods. By the end of the administration, it was legitimate fear about losing their lives. So in the first case, uh, and I would talk to Republican congressmen about this all the time, is they'd say, look, I know he's crazy, but you know he's probably gonna be gone in a couple of years and my constituents love him and I can't go against him. They were worried about losing their jobs. I can't imagine someone would ever love being a member of Congress so much that they would twist themselves into moral pretzel knots to stay stay there. In fact, I think it's one of the shittiest jobs on the face of the planet, but that's neither here nor there. They they would, you know, justify it because they don't want to lose their jobs. Same thing with a lot of people in the administration. That became a much, much different fear by the end of the Trump years. And I heard this a lot when I was out there trying to get folks to go public against him, is people were legitimately scared 
about threats to their lives and their families if they came out against Trump, because they saw the way he whipped up political intimidation, and they saw a growing trend towards political violence. Some extremists that followed him in their district or whatever would go actually shoot them or something like that. That's what you're talking about? Yeah. You know, and I was saying this for a long time, and folks rolled their eyes, but, but there was, you know, you'd, you'd go to places and have that conversation. I was on the campaign trail all over 2020 opposed to him. People would say, well, come on. Isn't that kind of silly that people feel that way? Now, I think that folks should have made the decision to stand up regardless of the threat because yeah. it's just going to get worse. Yeah. But, um, but you know, then Liz Cheney, she came out and made that very public after the vote on impeachment. And she said, look, I know some of my colleagues did not vote to impeach because they're literally scared for the safety of their families and the threats. And those were, I hate to say it, legitimate fears. So on the one hand, I wanted people to come forward and, and come public. On the, on the other hand, I would validate their fears because the level of political intimidation is enormous. I mean, in my case, when I went public against Trump, no one has to have sympathy for me because I went into it clear eyed. Um, we were met with an avalanche of threats. I had to have a personal bodyguard. I had to move houses. I still, to to this actual day, today, I was dealing with a legal issue related to a threatening MAGA figure. It's unending for people who've decided to stand up in this climate. And a lot of it's been whipped up by Trump himself. That intimidation is deliberate. It's meant to silence people. That's why intimidation works. Can you tell me about the Renew America movement that you are currently running? Tell me the founding story and what you're up to. Yeah. So, look, I I did not want to stay in politics. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I'm in politics and I hate politics. And I think most people who would say the same thing, including people who have made their whole careers in politics. It's about the worst time to be in this profession in modern American history. But that also means that for for those same reasons, it's the most important time for people to be uh, in politics is there are real threats to our democratic institutions. After the 2020 election, I had intended to go back to the private sector and basically, you know, rebuild my life after self-detonating it, going against Trump. But then January 6th happened, which to me, you know, was only equal in its impact on me personally as, as 9-11 was. Um, and I got a phone call the next day on January 7th from a good friend who said, hey, don't tap out of the fight now. We really got to do something. It's just going to get worse. There's going to be, you know, we think we beat Trump. There's going to be a thousand mini Trumps in the next couple of elections. We got to go hold them accountable. And so I started a multi-month conversation with a number of worried Republicans, uh, former Republican senators, governors, congressmen, cabinet secretaries, about what we could do to make sure that the party didn't lurch further in the direction of Trumpism and to bring it back towards the center. So we launched an effort last year called Renew America Movement, which was a group of a lot of those, you know, former Republican leaders with our stated goal being to restore a common sense coalition in Washington and really, again, unite disaffected conservatives against the craziness that we've seen in the MAGA wing of the party uh, and elsewhere. And to, uh, in many cases, ally with reasonable Democrats to protect good guys. So one of the things we did was launched a slate of renewers and dividers, basically members of Congress on the Democratic side and the Republican side that are good, strong centrists that we want to stand behind. 
And then we labeled uh, a group of people dividers, the most divisive, radical, far-right candidates that we hoped to see disappear from the public scene. Um, and we've been out there on the front lines, really defending those good guys against the bad guys. The most powerful component of this, though, again, is what I call coalition campaigning, is this concept that you can have Republicans teaming up with Democrats to go support good guys. There's some real catharsis in that across the country. And frankly, it's what's needed to protect democracy. If you look at the 2020 election and how Joe Biden won, and you break down the numbers, Joe Biden would not have won the presidency if concerned Republicans had not defected to support him. In fact, 7% of Republicans who voted for Trump in 2016 switched sides and supported Joe Biden for president in 2020. If it were not for those 7% of Republicans who pulled the ballot for the other side, you would have seen Donald Trump win a second term presidency. Statistically, it's an absolute certainty he would have won if Republicans hadn't flipped sides. What we're trying to do is really encourage people down the ballot to do the same thing in these midterms and in future elections, is go get in touch with those Republicans who are worried about Trump and Trumpism and say, hey, do it again. Go vote for a centrist Democrat instead of the crazy MAGA Republican for Senator House because they're a danger. And I'll tell you, it's a, it's a hard fight right now in the side, in the war between the rational Republicans and the radical ones. I would say rational Republicans are losing pretty badly. When you look forward to the next presidential election, which could be conducted under pretty unfavorable situation economically and otherwise for the incumbent, at least for the incumbent party, how do you put the focus on the things that are going to keep us from having a MAGA Republican, Trump or otherwise, as our next president? Well, I think it's not unreasonable to forecast that a year from now, Donald Trump will be running for president of the United States and Joe Biden will be getting impeached by a Republican House of Representatives. It sounds like a ridiculous scenario, but if you're a betting person, it seems to be the likeliest. I'd bet on that. Yep. Yeah. He wants to run for president again. He's made that very clear. We've seen news stories in the past week that he has considered announcing as soon as July 4th. I don't think that's going to happen, but it'll be probably soon thereafter. And then uh, we've seen Republicans signal that they want to impeach Joe Biden over the Hunter Biden laptop. But really, they'll, they'll grasp for anything that they can to try to undercut him. I think we're at a very, very high risk of Trump being president of the United States again. I've used this quote a lot, but there's a close friend of Joe Biden's that, um, that I've stayed in touch with who said, if I was down to my last $1,000 and I was in Las Vegas and I had to bet on who's getting sworn in as president in January 2025, he said, I'd bet it's Donald Trump. The fact that Joe Biden's own close friends are saying they think Trump is the likeliest next president should really, really give people a lot of concern. Um, what can we do to stop that? Well, for starters, I would hope that we don't stick with the same shitty options we had last time around, because the options we had in 2016 and 2020 were merely to hope that the Democrats can beat him. I don't think that's enough this time around. One time we hoped Hillary Clinton could beat him. She didn't. And he became president. Another time we hoped Joe Biden could beat him and Biden barely, barely statistically beat Donald Trump. Uh, I think if the election were held today, Trump would win. And we've seen polls to that effect in the last six months of Trump running very close to or ahead of Joe Biden if he ran for president. So what do I mean by not having the same set of options? 
I think we need to consider if Joe Biden runs for president again and looks like he can't beat Trump, there needs to be real consideration this time of a backup option of a genuinely credible third party or unity ticket against Donald Trump. You certainly don't want to spoil the election for him, but we need really serious candidates, both from the Democratic and Republican sides who would be willing to team up on a unity ticket to consider that option. And I think work done to build the ballot access across the country for that sort of insurance policy against disaster. And look, I, if it was Trump-Biden as a rematch, I, of course, would want Joe Biden to beat Donald Trump. I'm not entirely convinced he could. And you've even seen some chattering in just the past week in Democratic circles about a lot of fear that Joe Biden will run for president. I'm very convinced he will run for reelection and would be a weak candidate against a return of Trump. So we need to develop other options. But look, that starts well before the general election. And that means uh, all hands on deck for the GOP primary. We need to make sure that there's someone who's not just not Donald Trump, but a non-Trumpy person. Um, and that's going to be very hard to do in the Republican primary. And I don't have a great degree of confidence that someone like a Liz Cheney or an Adam Kinzinger has any hope of winning a GOP primary. It's very likely to be someone who's very Trumpy and even more sophisticated than Trump was. So it's not, you know, you don't need a backup option just if it's Donald Trump. Like the governor of Florida who's copying his hand gestures. I know, Miles, that you have to go to a meeting. I, I would gladly talk to you for another hour um, and maybe we can do that sometime. I probably should let you go to your next thing. Is there anything else you want to say in the last minute that we have about how you see the country and what you worry about? Well, look, I, I'll end on a note of optimism. I self-style as Mr. Brightside, not least of which because I'm a huge Killers fan and it's their best song. But the the optimistic note I would strike is I spend every single day looking at what's happening in our political system, looking at the numbers, talking to experts. And there are trend lines that are really exciting. This is probably the greatest period of political innovation we've seen in a really long time. There's a vast array of democracy reforms that have been proposed in states around the country. Now, there's obviously been a vast array of very damaging things proposed in states around the country to restrict voting rights and any number of laws. But there are really exciting things like ranked choice voting and jungle primaries and, and all of these efforts that, when combined, would result likely in more centrist candidates on both sides of the aisle getting elected. And there's a whole crop of people running for office this cycle as independents, not as Democrats or Republicans. I'm excited about this because I think it's actually our one way out of the current chaos is that people have more options and choice in their democracy, including more independent-minded leaders. And you're seeing the poll numbers actually show that Americans as a marketplace are much more interested in seeing those options. So for the first time in U.S. history, 50% of Americans say they're not Democrats or Republicans. They're political independents. That's a huge watermark. 62% of people who are still part of one of the two major parties said they would be open to a third-party candidate. How this manifests itself in the next 10 years is very unclear, but it does signal that there's enormous hunger for change and for more competition and choice. And I think that's really exciting. I think it's going to lead to political innovations that allow us to get out of this polarized mess. And that's something to look forward to. That's something for people to invest their time in. And you see a lot of support uh, for those types of reforms from Gen Z and millennials who will make up the largest voting block in America starting in 2024. So I think we're going to see a lot of things that are exciting over the next decade that maybe help us find a route outside of political polarization. Well, I, 
I really appreciate what you've done yourself as one person. I wish you the most success in, with Renew America and other things that you're up to. Appreciate you're taking the time with me also. So thank you. That was Miles Taylor. Miles is at the renewamericamovement.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.